Hey Siri, Alexa, Google, are you actually making technology more helpful? Maybe it's just the language barrier. Google is testing that out as it rolls out its digital assistant in Arabic across the Middle East and North Africa. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With us is Kelsey Warner, the Nationals Future Editor. Hello, Kelsey. Hello. And I'm very happy to say that we have a guest host for this episode, David Young, Chief Executive Oxford Analytica, a strategic consulting and advisory firm. Uh, David, it's good to have you here with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're in the UAE this week, uh, amongst other things, uh, to speak at the SALT Forum in Abu Dhabi. Um, how's that going so far? Yeah, superb. Um, in addition to a quite amazing venue at the Emirates Palace, uh, we've got about over a thousand people from all over the world. Uh, a heavy focus, obviously, on alternative investments um, and a very wide range of topics that we are discussing. So it's been a, a fascinating couple of days, one more one more day to go, and then I head back home. So, Well, speaking of, of, of fascinating stories, a little bit later on, I want to hear more about how Oxford Analytica came about, because it's qu- sure. quite, quite an interesting tale that we'll get from you, as well as finding out what, what you guys do. Uh, but for now, um, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, Google's rolling out its Arabic language service for its virtual assistant across the region in what could be a step change for voice-activated technology and artificial intelligence, which has been very much the talking point this week, hasn't it, Kelsey? Well, so do you guys actually use voice assistants is my first question. We actually, we don't, actually. You do not? No. You personally do not, or you at Oxford Analytica as a policy? Oh, oh, I thought you were referring to us at Oxford Analytica, which which we don't. Um, At home, personally, yes, I have used it. You do? Over over time, but um, not currently at the moment. Mustafa? It's something to distract the kids, I'll be honest. Okay. We've We've got these smart speakers. We've got an Alexa and a Google, mm-hmm. and it's really like when they have asked me a thousand questions, I'll be like, <laughs> go, tra- go tra- ask. You transition power over Alexa to the assistant. Or Google. Okay. All right. Give my brain a rest. As a parenting avoidance mechanism. Basically, which is what most technology is at the moment. <laughs> uh, but in, in all seriousness, um, the voice, everyone's been talking about voice as mm-hmm. being somehow a step change, not just for AI, but for how people use technology within um, their lives, their businesses. I mean, certainly here at The National, we've been having a lot of conversations about where voice is going for media and that a lot of people will be consuming news, um, you know, in audio content, much like this podcast. Yeah, a little meta. That's a meta moment for us. Yeah, here we are talking to you on that. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things of this story of Google rolling out the Arabic language. First of all, that um, Google's eating into Amazon's market share. So Amazon was the big daddy in the room when it came to to voice right they're certainly gaining yes and and language is an important part of it because if you're a natural arabic language speaker then your your voice interaction will be will be in arabic um but my my hypothesis is that the actual enabled devices apart from smartphones um are relatively small but all especially the home speakers but also if you look at how many smartphones there are in the world, something like 3 billion, the actual active monthly users that would use Siri, Alexa, Hey Google is, is, what le- is, is sort of less than or around 100 million? 
Right. It's very. It's still very low. It's still extremely nascent. And I think these companies have been able to sort of trump up their numbers because all of these devices are built with these assistants. But actual use seems to be pretty still like in the realm of novelty use and not necessarily because it's um, that helpful quite yet. I think the interesting thing about Google kind of gaining is they've really put a lot of time, talent, treasure into uh, Google Translate. And AI is getting better at that sort of immediate translation capacity and ability. And so them getting into, you know, more language offerings on their assistant side shows me that they're making a power play on just language diversity, which is admirable and probably makes good business sense. Do you do you think it is at the moment a a seamless user experience? It's kind of like question question number one because yeah. my experience is it it's kind of not no it's and, clunky and it's and embarrassing to your point of it being a novelty it's 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 kind of like oh wow this is cool let me see what it yeah. can do let me ask it some questions especially different generations right sure I mean well to me it um, the fact that you never hear anyone talking to their assistant in public mm-hmm. it's not yeah. considered like talking to a person in public. That, for me, is like the biggest sociological shift that we're going to need to make. I mean, the newsroom is an open office environment. I've not once ever heard anyone say, hey, Siri, in the same way you would say, hey, Mustafa. Um, And the second you get that action happening, I think then we're going to have rapid uptake. But like, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, David, you travel a lot and you've got a lot of clients around the world um, in, in your job. And I'll make the broader point that the discussion about AI and tech has been very much in the the idea that it's the US versus China. And in, in China itself, there isn't, it's not Alexa and Google, it's more Alibaba and Baidu. And, 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 but the, when, it comes, when it comes to, to sort of the, the, the more the broader discussion around technology, are you finding that it is a sort of either or, it's China or the US when it comes to, 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 to this subject? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is, that is the topic of conversation at the moment. Um, and if you look at the kind of the current trends and you extrapolate that out over the next three, four, five years, it's, it's increasingly going to be either or. Uh, the, the interesting th- thing with this as well, coming, coming from England and running a, a business based in Oxford, is which way is, is Europe going to go? Is it going to be pulled more towards what's happening in the US or is it going to be pulled more to, to um, software and technology that is being developed in, in China uh, I think the other interesting thing here will be the rollout of 5G. And I, I know we already mentioned uh, kind of seamless user experiences, but to what extent the rollout of 5G over the coming years will will impact these capabilities. In your assessment, this U.S.-China dynamic that's emerging in this sort of either-or decision that countries are actually coming to make, what are the risks associated with that? Or what are the, like, you're yeah. a risk company. Yeah, I mean, you know, number one, data privacy, right? And increasingly, everything, everything surrounding and to do with trust. So, if if this technology is going to be embedded into every single uh, device that we that we use, um, to what extent are businesses, organizations, and people going to trust that underlying technology? And especially when we talk about assistance, you're talking about you know when people are turning on and off their lights, when they're preheating their oven. So you're talking about when people are having dinner, when they're going to bed, when they're waking oh, that, up. It will the know amount everything. of data that's being gathered when you talk about connected devices is just exponential growth around it, what companies are going to know about us, right? Yeah, and I think if you look at the trends, that, that is where it's that's where it's moving. I mean, to the point where you'll have a smart fridge and you probably won't have to go to the supermarket because it will understand what's in your fridge and pre-order it. Um, I think you can you can definitely allow your imagination to wander. 
um, for a variety of reasons, but just the, the development capabilities, the rollout of 5G. Do you think 5G is going to improve the assistance capabilities? Because right now, like as we're saying, it is pretty clunky and embarrassing. Uh, another way to answer this would be it's not going to hurt it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, my gut reaction would be it's, it's got to help it. And I think also this point is, does it help the user experience or... As a result of 5G, you're going to have more interconnected devices. Everything everything will be smart and everything will be interconnected. So to what extent does that enhance the capabilities of, of these kind of digital assistants? I've, I feel like this is an interesting tech because it might be consumer-led as opposed to business-led. So, I mean, I mean we, Kelsey and I were talking the other day about how what's the t- how's the take-up of 5G going to be? Is, is it, it's, and we were debating whether there would be a, a, a fast take-up by consumers because th- they have to upgrade everything. Um, so they have to pay for a new smartphone and a new TV and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, to take advantage of the fast broadband speeds that 5G will bring. And not everyone's going to want to make that investment. And so perhaps we 5G will be on the business side. The investment will be f- perhaps first B2B, big infrastructure that will come in and we won't even notice it. And by the time that it's, it becomes a sort of consumer avalanche it will be seamless but for voice i off the top of my head i can't see business leading on voice it would need to be that consumers do it every day and then it comes into the workplace and then it comes into business yeah rather rather than the other way around yeah you know hard hard to refute that i think um i think that there's also this this element where it is you've got to change consumer behavior Right, especially away from voice, you've now got kind of digital payments and digital payment platforms. Right, that wasn't an immediate adoption by consumers overnight. It has taken quite a few years for people actually, you know, when when they go buy their coffee, not to you know exchange hard currency, but actually to to get their cell phone out and and pay digitally. So I think I hundred percent agree with you, um, and I also I'm I would challenge the speed of adoption. I, I don't think this is, you know, we're going to wake up one day and, and the world has been revolutionized. I think it is a, a slow transformation and transition to, to these new capabilities. Uh, let's move on to another big story this week uh, in Saudi Arabia, the Arab world's largest economy. They announced their budget for 2020, um, including spending of 1.02 trillion uh, reals, slightly down on the year before. And, and this number was well flagged, so it wasn't really a surprise. But what was interesting was the deficit has grown in percentage terms, if not absolute terms. And King Salman himself was saying that, you know, this is because we're going to continue to invest in developing our non-oil sectors. And he made a a particular comment, very timely, obviously, about the proceeds from the Aramco IPO, which is debuting as we speak. Yes, the the confetti is still settling on the trading room floor right now. (laughs) Um, And and has actually clocked in, I think, a world record in terms of valuation. But somewhere in the region of $30 billion um, will be the proceeds will be spent by the uh, public investment fund on diversifying Saudi's income. So again, I think this isn't necessarily something that is surprising anybody. We all knew this was coming, but it's actually happening. And so, and, and Saudi is continuing to commit to its vision 2030 and its diversification. And I, and I, I would say that given the uncertainty in the current landscape globally, that you can at least have a bit of certainty for the next few years of where Saudi is heading. And as I said, being the, the Arab world's largest economy, that's probably going to give investors and businesses some comfort in this region, I would imagine. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Just a couple of points. I think diversification for Saudi Arabia has to take place. Um, the the real question I, I've got is how deliberate will that diversification be and how successful will it will it be? Some of the conversations I've had this week with clients, it's um you know, not not living here and, and being based in the Middle East, but I've heard that, you know, on a Monday morning that, that plane is full of consultants now, um, flying from Dubai and Abu Dhabi to to Saudi Arabia, helping transform um, the the diversification initiatives. Um, I think there's another interesting thing that came up over breakfast yesterday, which was, I believe, for the first time ever. Now they've they actually are um, uh, providing tourist visas. So you, I mean, it's a classic example of um, the potential that Saudi Arabia has if it can diversify the economy. Uh, and the the final point I've got here is I think it's good for the region in a way. It's um, it's kind of going to enhance and boost the competition uh, within and between countries. Uh, so it's overall, I think it's a, it's a very promising and, and interesting topic to, to follow. Uh, but it certainly will not be without its challenges. And does it resonate outside of the region? I mean, when you're traveling around. That's honestly, that's my biggest yeah. question is outside of this bubble here. <laughs> What, it's big. The, it's big for us, the, right? Yeah, exactly. We yeah, think so it's, it's the yeah, biggest so, news so since sliced bread. But what's going so yeah, it it is not as big. Um, the IPO definitely big. Um, not being in the states at the moment or or in the UK, I I don't exactly know kind of what the word is on the ground this this week. Um, there there's definitely an appreciation uh, within certain circles of the the extent that this diversification and the IPO can can have not just on Saudi Arabia but also the region. Uh, I, I think I think this region is. I mean, personally, I've spent a significant amount of time here over the years, and it is one of these regions and and these countries and cities. I think you have to experience it. It's really hard to to clearly explain to someone in the states or in or in the UK what is going on here. Um, and and how driven Saudi is or the UAE is about forward progress and these visions. I mean, these visions are tremendously ambitious. Um, so it's, it's, I think you know people have to come and, and visit and experience it. Um, King Salman also uh, in his statement uh, for the budget said that uh, they, they're committed to raising government transparency and efficiency, that he said that's an important goal. I, I think really... If we talk about long-term significance, yes, money is important. Yes, investment is important. But that commitment, which goes along with what they're trying to do in the UAE here in terms of efficiency and transparency. But I think there's a global push now for more transparency. Investors are rewarding or will be rewarding more highly the more transparent companies and managements and governments, if you like. I mean, that. I think. I mean, my feeling is the next decade we'll see – levels of transparency that that we had been promised for some time and i'm talking mm-hmm. about globally but perhaps you know with the advent of the internet age promised this sort of radical transparency that hasn't materialized and in fact the the internet and that technology has actually helped people obscure things sure. but now i think the the basic demand is a certain level of transparency that everybody has to adhere to otherwise they will be they'll be punished by the market and what does that look like for you in terms of what good governance means because transparency to me kind of sounds like the word innovation or it's yeah. a bit of a it's got a, some buzzword kind it's of jargon it's a little is bit it, jargony but it, it it's real isn't it, it it is real but what transparency it's so ephemeral what does it mean yeah i mean yeah uh no i i definitely hear hear your points on this i think 
to to your point earlier, we live in a global market. We operate in a global market. It has to become more transparent if it's if it is going to attract talent and investment globally. So what are the things Saudi or the UAE or any nation, what would they do to signal that transparency? What are some actual tangible things that would demonstrate I mean, transparency? Pu- public reporting would... Public would, reporting. Would, yeah, whether that is, I mean, to, let's just say public reporting to stakeholders, whether that is to investors or or even increasingly now to consumers. Um, the, you know, when you look at the states and, and less so in the UK, um, Large, large multinationals are largely held to account by their by their consumer base, and you know what they are doing. You know, put this in the context now also of, of climate change, etc. What are these large global organisations doing to provide benefit, not just to consumers but mm. to the world at at large? And I think you, you you're going to have to see some some progress in Saudi Arabia towards those those areas. Uh, David Young, CEO of Oxford Analytica. I did promise our audience at the beginning that we'd get into the story <laughs> of, of how the how the company came about. It, it's been around since 1975. Yes, founded by your father. Yeah, that is correct. And it, it, it's called Oxford Analytica because it was based in Oxford. He was doing his PhD. Yes. Uh, so based in Oxford, and Analytica is the title on logic from Aristotle. So he kind of combined combined the two. So uh, despite the fact that I speak also with a, this is a bit of a funny story, I'll give you the backdrop. But So I speak with an English accent. I'm one of five kids, all born and raised in, in Oxford. But my parents are actually American. So my dad is from New York. My mum is from California. My dad, you know, they were living in New York as, as lawyers and then ended up moving to Washington, D.C. in the mid-late 60s and working in the White House. And every day at that point, and still to this day, the president gets something called the Presidential Daily Brief. And it is the top stories that have evolved and emerged overnight that the president needs to be aware of. And so my, when my father and mum left the White House in 72, 73 and moved to Oxford, uh, my father was writing his PhD and teaching and has this idea that he can recreate the presidential daily brief, um, call it the Oxford Analytica daily brief, and create a global expert network um, around the world to help contribute and validate and analyze what the key events and themes are and how they will evolve over time and how they will impact the strategies, investments, operations, and policies of, of clients. Was, was, was it a little serendipitous? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure he, and correct me if I'm wrong, he, his, his aim to go to Oxford was to start this business. Yeah, no, no, nothing, nothing to do with, with, the, with the business. Um, he was there primarily to, to write his PhD and, and started teaching politics, philosophy, and economics on the side. And I guess kind of had this light bulb moment. He's surrounded in Oxford and Cambridge of you know very, very smart, bright people that really have unique insights into what's happening in the world. And can he leverage that and, and produce analysis each and every day? I think the important thing here as well is in 1975, not many people knew what was happening in the world. Now, 45 years later... Everybody knows what's happening in the world, but few know actually what it means and what it means and, and how it will impact strategies, investments, operations, and policies. So in a weird way, kind of it's come full circle where it is critically important for at least um, our, our clients to have trusted, analytically robust analysis and insights into given what's happening in the world, what does it mean and what does it mean to them? So back in the 70s, how was the daily brief shared with clients? Yeah, by pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was something um, 
by fax originally. Um, And we would have staff that would work 24-7 reading papers, trying to understand what was was going on. They would then leverage that global expert network uh, to see see what was happening. So, yeah, I think, and and actually this is before my time, but there was something before fax um, that was the, the distribution mechanism. Um, and now, obviously, you know, here we are, you know, moving into a new year and a new decade. And so, is it an encrypted newsletter? Like, what does it look like now? It's uh, it, you get it via email. Mm-hmm. That links through to a secure kind of platform that's fully customized to every single user that we have. Um, and then we have kind of a, a mobile responsive website. So, I'm a big believer in in seamless user experiences, uh, and we're certainly moving Oxford Analytica at least are moving in that in that direction because I think it's. It's critical to be able to make, you know, quick, actionable decisions. I, li- I was looking into the history of the company and, mm. and they were, I like the synchronicity and you may not like it, but I like it, um, of, 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 the, of your father's career in the Nixon White House yeah. around the time of the Watergate scandal. Yeah. But then fast forward to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, yeah. which then you found, you found yourself having to talk about it, nothing to do with you guys, but because literally because of the name. Yeah, yeah, and, and so from one White House to another, essentially. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a pity, um, and again, just to reiterate, they had nothing in any way, shape, or form to do with us. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, it, it was a bit, uh, honestly, slightly, slightly well, annoying. But they're nothing to do with you, but they're. Uh, I mean, that whole episode that we're still think unraveling in a lot of ways and hold, holding people accountable for. I mean, is very much probably what you're monitoring. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of risk factors yep. and um, where we're headed. Yeah, and and actually trying to identify and analyze those under underlying drivers and restrainers. Um, and I think increasingly in today's world, that's in, you know it's increasingly interconnected. It's increasingly chaotic and complex. Uh, it's very hard for public and private organizations to truly understand what is happening next. And that's where we really try and educate them about mm-hmm. these. You know, what are the drivers? And how can they build organizational agility into their organizations so that when they or, or Oxford Analytica identify these trends, they can they can kind of manage and mitigate the risks. Um, I'm also a big fan that uh, so on one side of the coin there there are risks and managing those. On the other side of the same coin are opportunities, and that's where I think operational organize, um, operational agility is key because you've got to be able to move swiftly and make effective decisions to seize new opportunities. In the past, there was a perception that while there may have been sort of partisan think tanks, research organizations, some of the most famous like the RAND uh, Corporation that had its own particular philosophy, but it still felt like there was enough room in the landscape to have objective research analysis advice. It seems like today nobody wants objective anymore. I mean, is, nobody, nobody wants it, but they need it. Right. So your, your concept, your concept originally, at least, was was to try and, 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 and make it sort of yeah. objective, nonpartisan. Right. And, yeah, and how and hard is it to do that these days? Yeah, it's, it's certainly not easy. We've we've got 45 years of practice in terms of deploying very robust uh, academic methodologies to try and remove some of the innate biases that, that come into analysis. But I think in today's society, and, and as you say, is you know, it's becoming more and more bipolar, right? Um, it, it's really key for, for at least our clients to have the analysis that we provide each day and to trust that. Whether they agree with it or not is is kind of a, a separate point. It's us really 
not necessarily kind of speaking truth to power, but they, they really value and trust our analysis. And a large part of that is because of the methodologies upon which the analysis is based. So what next for Oxford Analytica? What, what, what are the areas that you're hoping you guys are going to be getting into? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think I mean, from, a, from an operational perspective is making sure that we run an efficient, uh, an efficient and effective business, making sure all of our stakeholders are happy. That probably is most important for our staff. Uh, and making sure that we are providing and we continue to pro provide independent, actionable insights to our clients. Um, again, I think you know there is so much chaos in the world today uh, and there's so much trouble. But again, on the other side of that coin, there's opportunity and really kind of working hand in hand with, with all of our stakeholders, whether that, that is our, our staff, um, our, our global expert network, and especially our, our client base. Uh, David Young, CEO of Oxford Analytica, thanks for being with us and for being our guest host today. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Hope you'll come back again soon. Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, Kelsey Warner, future editor, thanks again. Thank you. Uh, before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Paul Volcker, the towering former Federal Reserve chairman who tamed U.S. inflation in the 1980s and decades later inspired tough Wall Street reforms in the wake of the global financial crisis, has died at the age of 92. ENBD REIT, the real estate investment trust run by Emirates MBD Asset Management, has revealed plans to restructure its fund and to delist its shares from the Nasdaq Dubai. An Arab broadcaster, NBC, appointed Mark Antoine Dahulin former chairman of Luxembourg's M7 Group as its chief executive. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe on any platform you listen on. Leave a kind review by all means. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Thank you all for listening. Join us again next time. <laughs>